0: Well, welcome. This is our final Monday night meeting uh, for a little while. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break uh, for the holidays, and then we'll be coming back, Lord willing, together January 18th. So you might want to mark your calendars January 18th in 2021, and Lord willing, Mr. Nuremberg will be uh, doing that series starting then. Uh, we've been thinking together about Old Testament lessons on the Christian life. And we've been thinking particularly about the question, what ought to set us apart as God's people? What ought to characterize our lives? And we've noted, we've been thinking about three big things. The first thing that ought to characterize our lives is our relationship to Jesus Christ. We are those who have a personal relationship with Christ. We put our trust in Him. We, put our ref- we, we, we go to Him as our refuge Secondly, though, and we've been thinking about this, we've been been emphasizing this a little bit more, that we are characterized by an active pursuit of holiness. We thought about that last week and the weeks prior to that. An active pursuit of holiness. And finally, though, we are to be characterized by our mission to the world. We are not only those who who actively pursue holiness within us, but we are also looking out, right? And we are seeking to fulfill a mission, a mission which God has given us in this world. And that's what we're thinking tonight in our final session. We've already been looking at this a little bit, but we want to think about what is the mission. And we're going to think about that from a slightly different angle uh, tonight. Tonight we're thinking big picture. We're thinking, uh, we're seeking to understand a certain passage, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, not just within its immediate context, but within the context of the whole Bible. And we're warranted, I believe, in doing so because we believe that a single divine author stands behind the whole Word of God. What I hope that we've done in the past several weeks has given you an appreciation for the continuity of Scripture, the fact that It's one story from the beginning to end. It's got one purpose. God has one plan, and He's working that plan out. We're not experiencing God's plan B, right? This is still plan A, and God is bringing it to pass, and that's a wonderful thing. So let's begin our time with prayer. Father, again, we we look to You, and we ask that You would meet us tonight that you would enable me to say and speak your word, your truth, in such a way that we would hear from you. Father, we ask for the work of your Spirit to apply this word to our hearts, to our lives, that it might actually result in, in a change in our experience. And so we ask, Father, this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to consider this idea that we, believers, are a royal priesthood. You find this in a couple places in the New Testament. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter is saying, but you, and he's speaking to believers, you're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous life. I want you to key into that idea, a royal priesthood. The other place you see it is in the book of Revelation. You actually see it a couple places in the book of Revelation, but we're just going to consider this passage. It's the introduction to the book where uh, John is really saying this message is from the Father, it's from the Spirit, but it's from the Son and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you see that idea there as well, this idea of king-priest. We believers have this role. And so I want us to think, how does the Old Testament help us to understand this kingly-priestly role that we are to exercise? So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the very first chapter of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. And what I'm going to do tonight, a little bit different, is I'm going to attempt to prove a claim. I'm going to begin with a claim, and this is the claim. My claim is that Genesis 1 and 2 present Adam and Eve as having both a kingly and a priestly role, that is, they are king-priests. And we're going to try to prove... Uh, that claim. I believe it's there in the Word of God. We're not trying to be creative, uh, but we want to see this in the text. You you begin by seeing this in Genesis 1, 26-28. So I want to read that section. You begin uh, here by seeing Adam and Eve's kingly role. So pay attention to kingly language. God said in verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the Earth And so what we see here is that uh, this passage is describing Adam and Eve as God's royal representatives on earth. They are God's, you could say, kingly agents commissioned with the task of ruling over the created realm. Uh, God, you see that here that they have God's authority. God's, uh, they have God's authority, but they also have God's blessing, the king's blessing. God blessed man. And you could say, what was the content of that blessing? What, what is man blessed with? Well, they are blessed. The blessing consists in the right to rule over creation. That's a blessing. They are the right to rule. And they have the right to rule by being fruitful and multiplying and filling the entire earth, subduing the earth. And so you could say that God's purpose for mankind was that they would rule collectively as kings or vicegerents over all of creation. Note that they are to rule over the creation, not over each other. Uh, It's interesting, later on in in Psalm 8, you have David, and David is pondering these verses back in Genesis 1, and he uh, he writes this, and I'll come back to that, when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. See, that's the language, that's royal language, isn't it? It's it's the language of kingdom and kings, and rule, and dominion. So to get your blank here, it's the word rule. The blessing consists in the right to rule. And God gives this to Adam and Eve. Now, if Genesis 1 depicts Adam and Eve's kingly role, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to say kingly, queenly role every time. I'm just going to say kingly role. Uh, Genesis 2 depicts a priestly role for Adam and Eve. A priestly role. And there are at least two reasons why we should understand Adam and Eve as not only being kings and queens, but also priests. And the two reasons are these. It has to do with where they are located and what they are supposed to do. Number one, Adam and Eve are placed in a priestly location. A priestly location. We say, well, I thought they were placed in the garden. That's right. They are placed in the garden of Eden. You see it uh, there. In verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15, "...and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden." Now, there are many reasons to think uh, why we think or why it's right to think that the Garden of Eden is really a temple, a sanctuary of sorts, the first place where God chooses to dwell with mankind. In fact, later, the tabernacle and the temple were built in such a way as to evoke the imagery of the Garden of Eden. There were palm trees and animals, and it was meant to make you think back to the very first temple, uh, the Garden of Eden. Now, I did an entire session on this idea of Garden of Eden as temple and the temple idea in the Old Testament, and if you're interested, you can go to the website and get the rest of that. But if the garden really is a proto-temple of sorts... Then Adam and Eve are priests in this sanctuary, this first temple. Gordon Winnem, uh, who is a preeminent scholar in the book of Genesis, he uh, writes this The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis as simply a piece of farmland. It's not just a, a piece of dirt, you know, that you cultivate, but it is an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship Him. So, that's the first reason why there is a priestly idea here. But the second reason is Adam and Eve are given a priestly task. A priestly task. Back to verse 15. They are placed there in the garden and we are told they are placed there for two reasons. To cultivate it and to keep it. To cultivate it And to keep it. And these two words are important. Uh, There's an interesting... If you think about these two two words, there's an offensive and a defensive side to these two words. They are to serve in the garden. They are to work the garden, but they are also to protect the garden. That's more defensive, right? So they are to work actively and defend the garden uh, at the same time. The word cultivate is the Hebrew word avad, meaning to work or serve. It's a very simple word, very common word in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, note, as kings, but as servants. Now that is incredibly fascinating. They are kings and queens whose first task is to serve. I love it. This is God. This is what He does. This is His whole idea of how things are to go. But they're also there to keep. The word keep is the Hebrew word shamar. It's also a very common word in the Old Testament. And it means to exercise great care over something to the point even of protecting it or guarding it from danger. And this assumes that there is actually something to protect the garden from, which becomes very clear in Genesis chapter 3 that yes, indeed, there are dangers to protect the garden from, are there not? And so although it seems clear that they are placed in Eden by God to serve and keep the garden, we mustn't forget Uh, that these actions are not just mundane acts, uh, serving and guarding, but they are consecrated acts of worship that are ultimately directed towards God. In other words, by working the garden, they are actually serving and worshiping God. Does that make sense? By guarding the garden, they are obeying God according to His Word. And so it's all directed towards God. They are priests in this temple. Now, why do we say these two words? This activity depicts the activity of a priest. It's because the what's fascinating is these two words. Where's the very next time you see these two words side by side? Guard and keep. Can you guess? It's in the book of Numbers. And it's when Moses is describing or explaining the duties of the Levitical priesthood. And their two basic functions is serve, minister, and protect, guard, defend. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, So let me show it to you. That's why I did the blue and the red. The red is to keep, the blue is to serve. So watch here. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard, shamar, over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they avad, as they minister at the tabernacle, they shall shamar. All the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and they will they shall keep guard over the people of Israel as a avad at the tabernacle. You see that not just once. I mean, it's over and over repeated this language. You see it in Numbers eighteen seven. And you and your sons, you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil, and you shall serve avad. I give your priesthood as a gift. And this is amazing. Like, it's a gift to be a priest. It's a gift to be a king. God crowned Adam and Eve with great glory and great honor in giving them this king priestly role. G.K. Beale, another commentator, writes, Genesis 2 was portraying Adam against the later portraits of Israel's priest and that he was the archetypical priest who served and guarded or took care of God's first temple. You see, there's a continuity here and if you go to the commentaries, a lot of them are pointing to this fascinating idea here. Now, how do we to understand the relationship between man's kingly and priestly role? Because I think there's a relationship there that we don't want to miss. So here's my picture. Here's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. Don't laugh. Uh, they have a crown. That's the kingly idea. But they have royal garments, right? The stones depict the, the like the high priestly garment, right? So this is the kingly, priestly role. But how are we to understand how these two interrelate? Well, I think it's helpful to understand the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2. There's actually a relationship here. Genesis 1, if you read 1 and 2, you realize Genesis 1 is broader in scope than Genesis 2. Genesis 1 describes the entire six-day creation process, while Genesis 2 focuses and gives more additional detail regarding uh, the creation of the man and the woman, for instance, the planting of the garden, and man's purpose in the garden. And so you could say, in one sense, Genesis 1 is the big picture. Genesis 2 gives you added detail. Are you with me? There. So Genesis 1, you read, God created man uh, in his own image, but in chapter 2, you realize he formed him out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In Genesis 1, we're told that he created them male and female, but in Genesis 2, you realize how female came about, right? The rib comes out, and, and, and we have female. In the same way, both Genesis 1 and 2 instruct us regarding God's uh, man's role perhaps we can say that Genesis 2 further explains how Adam and Eve are to fulfill the royal commission given in Genesis 1 and as I'm trying to think about the relationship here in other words what we're saying is Adam and Eve will fulfill their kingly role of expanding the garden how are they going to do that by fulfilling their priestly role see they're going to become they're going to be kings they're going to fulfill their king role by fulfilling their priest's role of serving and guarding the garden in obedience to God's word. Perhaps it would be best for us to think not in terms of two completely separate offices, but as two roles that are deeply related to each other. Adam is called to a kingly, priestly role and task. If you think about it, this is has always been God's model for leadership. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But God's model of leadership is you lead by serving, right? You're kings by being priests, by serving and guarding. This is the way God intends for us to work out His purposes. Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Jesus Fascinating. John chapter 13. It's the Last Supper. And we read in John there, chapter 13, knowing, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he has all authority. What does he do? What's, what does he do? He gets up, takes off his clothes, assumes the position of a servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. And this is what's going on, I believe, here. Now, what is the objective of man's kingly priestly role? Like, Why are they given this role? What, are they, what is the goal of it all? And I'm going to quote here from a, another commentator named Walton. I'm using many commentators, but I'm, I think it can be helpful to see that. Long quotation, but try to hang with me as we read it. If people were going to fill the earth, says Walton, according to Genesis 1, we must conclude that they were not intended to stay in the garden in a static situation. Yet moving out of the garden would appear a hardship since the land outside the garden was not as hospitable as that inside the garden. Otherwise, the garden would not be distinguishable. It wouldn't be a garden. Perhaps then we should surmise that people were gradually supposed to extend the garden as they went about subduing and ruling extending the garden would extend the food supply as well as extend sacred space since that is what the garden represented. And what Walton is saying is that the objective of this kingly priestly role was to extend the boundaries of Eden. God's sanctuary until the whole earth became God's dwelling place. And since that's the vision that Habakkuk has, is that the whole earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's, that was, that's God's objective. That's God's goal. And I don't think we're drifting into conjecture when, I don't think Walton's drifting into conjecture when we are saying this. Because God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 that they are to fill the earth, right? That's a command, fill the earth. But it's clear that the garden does not fill the earth presently, right? The garden is not over the whole earth. In Genesis 2, they're explicitly told to serve and guard over the garden, So here's the question. How are you to serve and guard the garden and at the same time fill the earth? How do you fulfill both? How do you at the same time fill the earth without leaving the garden? Because that's the implication, right? You're supposed to serve and guard the garden. Well, the simple answer is you expand the garden. You extend the garden. G.K. Beale writes, and so here's, here's my visual. If the garden is about there and maybe it wasn't there, but let's just say it was there, this is the role, is to expand the garden so that it covers the whole earth, so that the whole earth becomes a temple. In fact, that is where everything is actually going. If you look at the book of Revelation, the whole earth will become a temple, a place where God dwells, the presence of God. Are you with me so far? Um, so G.K. Beale writes, the intention seems of Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the border of the garden sanctuary into the inhospitable outer spaces. The outward expansion would include the goal of spreading the glorious presence of God. And what I want to point out is I believe this has always been God's objective and the fall of man into sin has not stopped that objective. That is still God's objective right now, today. Today. This is still what God is doing. Now I transition here. Um, we We could take this kingly, priestly theme all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through Scripture, and we could be here for days because it's a massive theme. And we could look at every place where it comes up. But I don't want to do that. I want to move pretty quickly to its application to our lives. But I want to note in passing that the whole Scripture unveils this theme of God's intention to have a kingly priestly people. And and, and so I'm just going to point out a few places in the Old Testament where you see this theme. Of course, this first place you see the theme is when God sets Abraham apart uh, to himself. And he tells Abraham, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all the families of the earth. And when God says that I will bless you, and through you I'll bless all the families of the earth, that's recalling the blessing of Genesis. It all goes back to that blessing, right? Because God there blessed man. That's His intention; is to bless man, and God still wants to bless man. You see the language of Genesis in Genesis uh, Genesis one. You see the language of Genesis one in Genesis seventeen. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. See, God's goal is still the multiplication, the filling of the earth so that His presence would fill the earth. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make nations of you and the kings will come forth from you. You hear this same theme at Mount Sinai when Moses, the the people of God, are there before Mount Sinai and and Moses is, is enacting God's covenant with the people. And you read, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, covenant, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's where Peter is taking this phrase from. But sadly, this is not what happened. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, did not become a nation of king-priests. They fell into sin. And eventually you have the Levites who become the priests, and you have kings who come from the tribe of Judah. And it is, in some sense, not fully what God intended to do, right? It's not exactly. But what's interesting is that God sprinkles into the text, like salt in a sense, that this is still his intention. His intention is still that there be a kingly priestly people, that it be embodied in one person, the king-priest role. And so scripture points to individuals with kingly priestly roles who prefigure a new Adam, a last Adam who will perfectly fulfill this kingly, priestly role. And so you have Melchizedek, fascinating figure in the book of Genesis, mysterious person. He comes and goes within a few verses. We are told that he is the king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. And he brings out, what does he bring out? Bread and wine, which are signs of the new covenant. Just fascinating. You have Solomon. Solomon. Solomon is a great king. He's the son of David. But he not only builds the temple, but he offers sacrifices in the temple and he intercedes for the people. It's a very important passage where Solomon intercedes. He prays over the nation and he functions somewhat in both king and priest role. And then you have a fascinating section. Oh, this is fine. I hope you find it fascinating uh, here in Zechariah uh, where Joshua... Joshua is the high priest in uh, Israel and Zechariah is a prophet of that time and he is told to make a crown. Let's read the passage here because it's so fascinating. It's prophetic. Uh, Zechariah is told, take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now don't miss that, right? You're to take a crown and place it on top of the priest. So now he becomes a kingly priest right? and thus then say to him thus says the Lord of hosts he's to prophesy over him behold a man whose name is Branch for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord yes it is he will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices well, this prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we know this. Jesus is both king and priest. Matthew makes it clear at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is from the royal line, right? He is a son of David. The Magi come and say, "Where is he who is to be bo- who was born?" King of the Jews. That's how they name him, right? He is the King of the Jews. We saw a few weeks ago how the crowning of Jesus took place at his baptism where the the Father says, This is my Son. And where the Spirit of God comes down and anoints him. And Jesus begins a ministry of of proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It is here. The king has come. I like to think of the incarnation as a massive invasion. I like to think of it as D Day. You know the, the the storming of the Normandy beaches. I don't know if you've seen a video, you know, maybe a movie, a depiction of this all these ships coming in to take over Europe. And as as they take over the beach hat and as they move into Europe and into France and they, they you know, they, they, they start moving past villages and towns, and as they go through, they're liberating these villages. And there's rejoicing, and there's freedom, and there's dancing, right? It's amazing that this is what was, this actually took place. In a sense, this is what was happening with the incarnation, is Jesus has invaded the powers of darkness, and he is moving in, and he's setting captives free, and he's healing people, and he's casting demons out, and there's rejoicing. Massive rejoicing. It's an invasion. He's king. But how does Jesus subdue and rule? How does he exercise his authority among men? Note, he doesn't do it by oppressing them. He doesn't do it by force of arms. But how does He do it? He does it by serving them. Right? We read, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He comes serving, both serving through proclaiming a message, but also serving in His deeds with, in the way He healed people and helped people and serving them. He also guarded he exercised great care over that which was entrusted to him that was very important he not only served but he guarded he guarded himself he kept himself from temptation he resisted temptation he didn't allow anything unclean to touch him he watched he prayed but he also guarded others all those who were entrusted to him so that at the end of his at the end of his ministry he can say i've lost no one i've lost no one except for the son of perdition, because it was in order to fulfill the word of God. He prays over his own. He warns his own. He rebukes his own. He teaches his own. He guards. He serves. He guards. He serves. He guards. You see, Jesus is not only a king, but he's a priest. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that he is the ultimate high priest. So what does this all have to do with us? What does this have to do with the church, with you and I? Well, it has everything to do with us, right? Why does it have everything to do with us? Because we, as we noted at the beginning of a session, we believers are called a royal priesthood. We are called kings and priests. We've been called to sit with Christ in heavenly places. That's a royal position. Well, how are we to do that? How do we fulfill that role? Should we have thrones instead of pews in our churches? Should we take up the sword? Should we have altars and sacrifices? Should we, read, should we you know, wear priestly garments? No, none of those things. Number one, as king priests, believers are God's royal representatives commissioned with expanding the borders of God's sanctuary to the ends of the earth. So I want to focus a little more on the royal side here in the goal of the royal task, the royal task that we've been given. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God, he says, as oh God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. What does it mean that we are ambassadors for Christ? Well, it means that we've been commissioned by Christ. We've been commissioned by him. Secondly, it means we represent him. Ambassadors represent the one that they are ambassador for. And third, it means that we exercise Christ's authority. Ambassadors have huge authority. They represent that person. They're commissioned, they represent, and they exercise Christ's authority. This is a royal function, if you think of it. Since Christ is king... And he sends us out as ambassadors. We are royal ambassadors. Think about Matthew 28 as well. I'm just pointing out some passages here that depict that kingly role that we have There are fascinating parallels between God's commission of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Christ's commissioning of His disciples here in Matthew 28. Let me read. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See that kingly language there? All authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, your ambassadors, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, believers, expand God's sanctuary, not by cultivating land, but as as Adam and Eve did, or were to do, but by cultivating people's hearts by communicating an authoritative message of forgiveness to those who will turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus. I find it fascinating how in the New Testament there's a lot of agricultural language. You know, Paul will say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's this agricultural language, right? We're extending the garden, the garden of God's sanctuary, of God's temple, of God's presence throughout the whole earth. Our prayer is still, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, every time a person repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ, the the temple is built a little higher. God's presence extends a little bit farther. Does that make sense? And that's the goal. Go into all the earth. Fill the earth, right? With the knowledge of the Lord. It's fascinating in Luke. This is why in Luke, uh, this is why Luke in the book of Acts, excuse me, in the book of Acts repeatedly reminds the reader. And we might not pick up on this, but Luke is actually reminding the reader that the Genesis 1 promise, it's not so much promise, commission is actually being fulfilled by the Great Commission. And he does this explicitly. In a sense, he, we, we, uh, you know, the, the early Christians, the disciples, were, said, were told, "Start here in Jerusalem. Start right here, and then expand from here." And then they went up to Antioch, right? And then you have the first missionary journey to Asia Minor, and then and then the second missionary journey to Achaia, and then it, it moves further and further and further, right? The, the the garden is being extended, and Acts makes this, I believe, explicit. Remember that Luke. Uh, probably his first language was Greek and his Old Testament would have been in Greek. Not in Hebrew, but in Greek. He would have had a translation that he could read and and be comfortable with. And in his translation, Genesis 1 and 28 said, increase and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And, And Luke latches on to those two words, increase and multiply, and uses them in his... Book of Book of Acts to tell you that this is what's happening now. Look at look where he puts it. Acts six, 6 seven. And the word of God continued to increase, and in, in the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts twelve, twenty four, but the word of God increased and multiplied the exact same two words as back in Genesis one twenty eight. And then one word here, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. He doesn't want you to forget the, the, the purposes of God are being fulfilled in an entirely new way than we thought of. Isn't that encouraging? I hope, you get, I hope you're encouraged by that. This is not plan B. You're not part of plan B. You're part of plan A. God is fulfilling His purposes. He is expanding the garden. He is expanding His kingdom. He's expanding His sanctuary and He wants to use you. He wants to use me. He's called us to go, fill the earth, go to all the world, make disciples. All right, point two. This is our final point. As king priests, believers join in Christ's rule and they exercise Christ's authority on the earth by serving and guarding in God's new temple. So I want to focus a little bit more here on the priestly role. They serve and they guard in God's new temple. God's people are His representatives on this earth, vested with His authority. Note that God has placed us not in the Garden of Eden, but He's placed us in the temple of His body. Paul will say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has made us kings and priests. But how do we exercise our authority? How do we go about you know, making disciples of all the nations? Do we do it at gunpoint? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Let me make that real clear. No. How do we do it? We do it by serving. We do it by serving. We serve with words. We've already seen that we do it by heralding a royal message, God's royal decree, good news, that he's willing to grant pardon to anyone who is willing to simply own up to the fact that he or she is a rebel and turn to God and submit to him. Imagine that. Imagine if President Trump right now said, I will pardon anyone in any penitentiary from minimum to maximum security who will simply write a letter to me and ask for pardon. (laughs) You know something super simple. You think you'd be getting a lot of letters? I think you'd be getting a lot of mail. And this is this is the message, in a sense, we herald to all. This is the one, one of the ways we serve God and people and expand the garden of the sanctuary. But we also serve with actions. We lay our lives down in practical ways for the sake of others. Like Jesus, we make up our mind in every situation that we are not there to be served, but to serve and to give our lives for others. And and note the relationship between words and deeds here. It is Our our, our words are authenticated. That is, they are shown to be true by our deeds. Does that make sense? Our deeds, our actions back up our words. They show them to be true. So they go hand in hand. They always go hand in hand. And so I would encourage you: make up your mind, be a servant, rule by serving. That's the call. That's the call of the the Bible, in a sense. Rule by serving. You know, you you students are going on Thanksgiving break. This is an awesome mentality to go into break, to go home with. Right. And, and those who aren't students, you as well, of course. But how are you going home? You going home to be served? No, you're going to serve. You're going. To exercise your kingly priestly role by doing the dishes, (laughs) by by serving around the house, by serving people in word as well, encouraging them, speaking truth to them. Rule by serving, but we also rule not just by serving, but by what? By guarding. These two go hand in hand, and and the guarding is crucial. We exercise great care over that which has been entrusted to us. Well, what are we to guard against? You might say, you know, what is there to guard against? Well, Genesis 3 makes it very clear what we are to guard against. We are to guard against temptation. We are to guard against disobedience. We are to guard against sin. That's the thing we are to guard against. We are to guard against the devil, the tempter, right? How do we guard? Well, we guard by guarding ourselves. This is what we thought mostly about last week. We exercise our authority by saying no to sin, by resisting Satan, by pursuing holiness, spiritual growth. We guard over our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our relationships. See, God's temple is to be a holy temple, and His priests are to be a holy. We are to be a holy priesthood. We're to be sober. And alert, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, as you go home, as you go on break, be on the alert. Watch out. Be on guard. Serve, guard, but not just ourselves, but you're to guard others. This is this is so important. This is a team effort. <laughs> We are a family. We are God's people. We are together in this. No man left behind is the idea of the New Testament Christianity. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Like, make sure we do this together, right? Encourage one another daily, as it is called today, so that no one might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we're to pray for each other. We are to warn each other. We are to encourage each other. We are even at times to confront each other. I love what it says in James chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, and listen, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now that's being on guard for your brother and your sister. right? You're watching out for them. And so on break here, you might text a brother or sister in Christ and, and just say, How are you doing? You know, are you holding up? You might pray for them, might encourage them, right? You, you, you guard yourself, but you guard others. You serve, you guard. And I believe what we've seen tonight is two of the great concerns in the New Testament for the church. On the one hand, the church must expand. It must be built. It must advance into all the world. But on the other hand, the church must remain pure, holy, faithful to her Lord. The church must maintain her witness. She must be a light in the darkness. Now here's the question. How do you advance into the darkness and remain pure? How do you engage in this world without loving this world? These are the two great concerns, right? How do we do this? Well, the two concerns are not at odds against each other. They do not destroy each other. The church is not to ensure its purity by retreating into a commune. It's not to protect itself from the sins of this world by isolating itself. No, the church is a mighty army. Think about that. It's a mighty army of royal priests who are called to advance God's kingdom in the world, to bring light to dark places, to set captives free. How? 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 By laying their lives down for the sake of others. By serving God, others, by guarding themselves, guarding ourselves and others from sin and Satan's attack. This is how we do it. You see, it, you see it in Acts. You see it with Paul. It was always, advance, guard. Advance, guard. You know, Move forward. Protect. This, this is what you see in the New Testament. And this is what we are called, the task we are called to. Serve. Guard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that we've thought about tonight. We thank you for the great honor and glory that you've bestowed upon us, your people, in calling us to these roles and we could say restoring us to these two roles. Father, grant us grace to fulfill these roles. Enable us. Meet us. Pray particularly for this break, these students. Lord, enable them Remind them of these truths and enable them to live these roles out as they go from here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.